Thanks for joining the Hague Mennonite Church podcast. We are a small and friendly congregation in Hague, Saskatchewan. Here you will find our weekly messages and we hope you will be encouraged and blessed. Let's get it started. So let's get into our scripture for the day. And, and you know, by way of reminder, last time we saw Peter and John get into trouble with the Sanhedrin. And this is kind of remarkable because that old drama that we are so familiar with from Matthew is back. The Sanhedrin opposes the disciples in exactly the same way that they oppose Jesus. And by way of reminder, the Sanhedrin is the collection of all of the Jewish elite in the country, the ruling families, the elders, the Pharisees, the priests, and the Sadducees, all the, all the big shots on one legal council. The Sanhedrin, they thought that they had put the Jesus movement to rest. They thought the Jesus movement was dead and entombed. But now they can see that the same power and authority that was in Jesus is also in Peter and John. And so we're left with this great story of two exceptionally ordinary guys doing extraordinary things. And what we saw last time is one of those extraordinary things is the wisest men in all Israel can't contradict their arguments. They're debating with literally fishermen. And so the Sanhedrin, realizing they've been defeated, can only come to one conclusion. It's clear Peter and John have been with Jesus. To the Sanhedrin, they see him and they they look in horror because now Peter and John are just like him. So where the story ended, the Sanhedrin sent the two men off. They couldn't hold anything against them. There wasn't a charge. But they did so after threatening them repeatedly never to talk about Jesus again. And so today we're going to look at what happens next, starting in verse 23, chapter 4. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So this report, it's bad news. There's no doubt about it. The Sanhedrin was clear. Do not speak the name of Jesus ever again. And so Peter and John, they first go to their friends. They go to the community of believers to tell them what has happened. And I think that this is actually a profound choice of words. These are their friends. If you remember back to the end of chapter 2, we talked about some of the primary elements of what made up the early Christian life, and I was very glad that two of them basically had to do with food. That was awesome. But fundamentally, what that all meant is that they live life together. And one of the primary marks of the early church was that they lived their lives together. They were friends. And that shouldn't be profound to us, but it actually is profound to us because this theme it keeps coming up in the book of Acts and what we find is that you can show up for Sunday mornings you can even in our context you can watch online but if you're not with us if you're not with the community if you're not investing in other people and living life together you're missing out on the full Christian life If we're going to put the love that Jesus taught us into practice, 
This is the place he designed to do it first. But I get it, you know. How is it fair that old Pastor Chad keeps preaching, we need to be a community, we need to be together during a pandemic? I totally understand it doesn't really work. But I also believe that when our community is as fragmented as it is right now, that's exactly when we need to remember that the community is crucial to a healthy spiritual life. Because human nature, I heard somewhere once it takes 90 days to develop a habit. We've had way more than 90 days. It is easy to develop habits which replace the church, right? So we have this humble community. It is gathered in Jesus' name. It is the light to the world. And for us, we know that there are so many lonely people out there. I don't know that my generation or, or other generations always understand it, but if they did understand it, I think they would know that there is nothing more attractive than a community which cares for them. Because where else do we find it? We try to find that in our families, but for most of us, that's a struggle, and half the time we need to fake it. You know, no offense to my family. I'm just, I'm speaking in general here. I'm sorry, Aunt Mitch, you know. We trust in God to make us that sort of a community where people are together so that hurting people can find a place to belong. And when there is crisis, like Peter and John are in, they have friends, they go to friends. So that was my my mini sermon on the word friends. Verse 24. And when they heard it, the report, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So the community, the friends, they understand right away the gravity of everything that's just happened. And we have to keep in mind that that we're not talking about 12 disciples anymore. We're talking of thousands of people. These are people with families. They have livelihoods. And they can see now from this report that following Jesus is going to cost them. So their souls, their souls have this perfect reflex. They are in crisis. And so they cry out to God in prayer. When this passage says that they lifted up their voices in the the Greek grammar, it literally reads, they they lifted up their voice. It's singular. They are praying together with one voice. And it doesn't really work in English to say it that way, but Luke is trying to make a point. He's saying that when they prayed in the middle of this crisis, they prayed with one voice. They prayed in unity. And the first words out of their mouth, I think they tell you exactly how the church is going to respond to this threat. Their first words are, Sovereign Lord. And if we remember, remember last time, Peter, in this spectacularly bold moment, he asked the Sanhedrin, should we listen to you or should we listen to God? The answer is so obvious. God is sovereign. Sovereign means to have ultimate power. It's not even a question. So the first thing they say when they pray is, God, ultimate power belongs to you. Who is it more dangerous to disobey, the priests who rule Israel or the God who created heaven and earth? So sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. 
who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna stop right there because I think by now, you know, we've, we've touched on Acts a few times. You may be starting to see a pattern. We see that the early Christians, they relied on the Psalms both for preaching. Uh, Peter has just preached Psalms sermons. He preached a Torah sermon as well. And they relied on them for prayer. When the disciples read the Psalms, they saw Jesus. And here we see they actually prayed the Psalms. So once again, we, we see King David writing through the Holy Spirit. And it's put that way again and again and again. Because the same spirit who inspired David's poetry is the spirit which is forming and empowering this very young church. It's interesting, if you, you don't have to do this right now, but if you flip to Psalm 2 in your Bible, you'll notice that in the Hebrew Bible, it's not attributed to King David. And usually those Psalms, it's pretty clear. It's a Psalm of David. And so I can say that clearly, at this time, there was already a tradition that David had written this Psalm, and it was identified as the Psalm of David. So I'm going to go with the Apostle's authority on this one. And so here's what David wrote. Here's what they're quoting. This is from Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So David wrote that the Gentiles, your, your version may say nations, but it's the same word uh, goyim in, in Hebrew. The Gentiles are the nations of the world, they rage. The word for rage here is usually used for like a stubborn animal, an angry horse, something like that. And the word for plot here in the second line isn't some sort of a devious or a clever plan. It means senselessness. It means mindlessness. It means uselessness. The plot is in vain. The plot is pointless. So David's image is that the political powers of the earth are arrayed against the Lord and against his anointed. And the word here for anointed in Hebrew is Mashiach. Literally, that is the word for Messiah. In Hebrew, Mashiach, Messiah, and anointed, it is the same word. That's what Messiah means. So this is the scene. David, through the Spirit, sees all of the powers of the earth aligned against Yahweh God and literally against his Messiah. And so without looking ahead, without cheating, where have we seen Gentiles against Jesus? Have we seen rulers gather against him? Any ideas? Like Pilate would be the prime example. Yeah, everybody's nodding now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. It's kind of amazing how this works because the disciples, they've known Psalm 2 their entire lives. It was part of the regular liturgical readings of the synagogue. 
Now they understand, having heard this psalm all their lives, exactly what David saw, because now they have just seen it themselves. They have seen this scripture fulfilled. It must have been amazing for them to recognize this. You know, they must have felt like, boy, we're living in Bible times, right? Because they have certainly seen Gentiles and kings arrayed against Jesus. They mention Herod here. This is Herod Antipas. We've talked about him numerous times before. And you see, when Luke was researching and gathering all his sources about what happened at the crucifixion, he found some details which Matthew didn't include. And we saw that already with the priest, but here's another one. Just listen to this. This is from Luke 23. Luke wrote, When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, speaking of Jesus. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself at Jerusalem at the time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, that he w- and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. This picture you get before the crucifixion in Luke is Jesus kept getting handed over from person to person to person. And what we see here is that when Jesus was turned over to Pilate, Pilate figured out that Jesus was a Galilean. And so Pilate thought to himself, this is perfect. This is a perfect opportunity to have somebody else deal with this problem. Antipas, he was in Jerusalem for the Passover. So Pilate had Jesus sent over. Antipas was the ruler of the Galilee. So he kind of by default had jurisdiction over Jesus the Galilean. So it ends up being a bizarre scene because even though Jesus is arrested and he's going to be executed, Antipas is very glad to see him. He's excited because he's heard so much about him. Antipas is the ruler of Galilee. He's heard all these miracle stories. He wants to see Jesus do some tricks. And remember, this is the same Herod Antipas who murdered John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner. And if John prepared the way for Jesus, Antipas is not going to bring anything but death. And so Jesus does not even bother to speak to Antipas. And all the while, members of the Sanhedrin stand by and they accuse Jesus of every blasphemy under the sun. Antipas himself, he joins in mocking Jesus and then Antipas sends him back to Pilate And both having this in common, that they've both abused the Son of God, they then become friends, even though they've previously been enemies. Kings of the earth and rulers set against the Lord and his Messiah. Antipas himself, he was half Jewish. The Herodian family was half Jewish. And Jews generally regarded them as outsiders, as Gentile kings. So both Antipas and Pontius Pilate and all the other Romans who were a part of the crucifixion, they fulfill the role of Gentiles in Psalm 2. But if you notice that last bit here, 
The disciples are saying it's not just the Gentiles who have done this. It's also the people of Israel. When the disciples read Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? They read those people, peoples as Israel, as their fellow Jews. Israel always read this psalm as the nations around Israel turning against Israel and her Messiah. They could never have imagined that they would play a part in this rebellion. So we've said it before, and the scripture is perfectly clear. This, the way scripture lays it out, all, all are guilty of abusing Jesus. It was not just foreigners who abused the Messiah as Israel expected it would be. And it wasn't simply Israel who bore the, the whole of the blood guilt, as some of the darkest chapters of ter- church history have taught. David clearly predicted that all the world, Israel included, would be directed against the Messiah. So they gathered against the Messiah to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Even if all the world is against Jesus, that does not mean that Jesus is not in control. That does not mean that God is not in control. Psalm 2 is evidence that both the Father and the Son knew that this would be the case. They knew that Jesus would be rejected. God is still creator. God is still good. Everything belongs to him. And even though we are wretched, his plan is still good. And his plan took our wretchedness into account. All the authorities of the earth will reject the Savior. That's the promise. So what does that mean then on that day for these small group of disciples who accepted Jesus? What does it mean for them, these ordinary people, to be against all the powers of the world? How in the world do you even begin to pray about this? And so let's look at what they ask of God. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and punish them for their wickedness. That's not what they say. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and save us from persecution. That's not what they say. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. God, do not let us be afraid. Don't let us stop. God, help us to be faithful. They're going to pursue us, they're going to arrest us, and they're going to kill us, so God make us brave. Why should they pray for revenge? Why should they even pray to escape persecution? Because David said the whole world would be aligned against the Messiah. It's to be expected. It's a part of the plan. And so they pray, God, this is your plan. Help us to be brave. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word in all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I've asked this question a couple times. It's almost like I'm trying to drive the point home, but I'm going to ask again. Why did Jesus perform miracles? 
What was the primary reason? To show his authority. Gold star for Andrew. <laughs> That's good. So do you see the connection? They've just prayed for boldness. God, help us continue to declare your word boldly while you continue to show them that we have your authority through signs and wonders. That's their prayer. God, help us to match your healing power with the willingness to preach the word, whatever comes. And if you notice, this verse 30, this last part, it is not a request. They are not asking God to show the authority of the word with miracles. This is simply how it works. This is how Peter and John got into all this trouble in the first place. Healing the beggar made their preaching irrefutable. And that's why things have escalated so quickly. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit comes with the proclamation of the gospel. When the church is bold in Jesus' name, God affirms its preaching. And you see, it's not the disciples who stretch out to do the healing. It is God. God breaks the rules of this world to give glory to the name of Jesus. When Peter healed the beggar, he asked the crowd, men of Israel, why do you wonder about this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him to walk? Later, Peter said, it is his name by faith in the name of Jesus that has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith, faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. It is not by Peter's own piety. It is not by his own power. It is only by the name of Jesus. And so brothers and sisters, I want to say that the miracles of God have been long abused in the church. They have either been denied altogether by the church or they have been claimed by men and women who claim to heal by their own piety or by their own power or by their own personality. But Peter is clear. Healing the beggar had nothing to do with him. It wasn't his piety or power. The man was healed by faith in the name of Jesus, period. Miracles, signs, and wonders have nothing to do with, with pious men or charismatic leaders. Miracles come from the trust in the name of Jesus and nothing else. And so for those who, with the wrong heart, have made careers as special holy men, I believe that they've robbed Jesus of his glory. Because there's nothing, there's nothing special about you if God does a miracle through you, or does a work for you, or you experience something. It's not your power. All glory and all honor always, only, belongs to Jesus. And not even Peter, the rock of the church, will claim a shred of it. Not even Peter calls himself pious. But we can't make the foot mistake. As some teach, it is not true. God's power has not grown dull. God hasn't pulled away from the world to leave us to our own devices. He is as involved in our lives and in the life of the church as ever. And God still seals the authority of his word with signs and wonders.
And we've heard some of those stories here before. I mean, we've heard a testimony about an unborn child being miraculously saved in the womb with no medical explanation. We've heard other stories, and I even count my experience being that God met me in mental illness and saved me from it as a miracle because it defies explanation. And it is all only for the name of Jesus, irrefutably, and it will always continue. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God immediately answers their prayer. He responded and he assures them with their presence, which to those gathered felt like shaking and I can only imagine what that was like. And as they prayed, they were empowered once again by the Spirit to be bold. This is the specific outpouring for their need at that hour. The church needed boldness because they had a lot to be afraid of. And so Luke tells us that they continued to declare Jesus even if the whole world was against them. The church boldly preaches Jesus even through opposition and God supported their preaching with wonders. And that's going to be much of the story of Acts. And what we see here is that all of these three things, boldness, opposition, and signs, these are normal to church life. These things are to be expected. I was going to drag out my big tome from the office, but I'm going to pull another section out of the martyr's mirror. It's that book this thick about the witness of uh, martyrs, especially Anabaptist martyrs, but before that as well, who gave their lives to witness for Jesus. And I think it offers so many perfect examples of this kind of boldness. Opposition from the authorities is guaranteed according to our scripture. So Lord, help us to be bold. In the year 1562, there was a man named George Friesen who was arrested in Cologne for his faith in Jesus. And while he was in the dungeon, he suffered numerous threats from the authorities and they continually demanded that he renounce his faith. And the authorities would use a carrot and a stick approach. They would threaten him with torture. And they would interrogate him frequently. And he was even brought before the Duke in order to be bribed. But even though George was just an ordinary man, God gave him wisdom and scriptural understanding, which totally confounded his accusers and totally confounded his jailers. They couldn't match him in an argument. And he didn't have anything prepared. He was alone in prison. At one point, George Friesen was even brought into an audience with the Count of Cologne, the ruler of the city. And he offered him servants, and he offered him money if he would renounce his faith, and he'd let him go scot-free. And George responded to the Count, Your servant-made riches or money cannot take me to God but I have chosen something better for which I hope to strive. So then before his execution, he was brought into the Count's own household during the night in order to be beaten and mocked. And all the while, George said nothing to his accusers. That sounds so familiar. And it was that morning that George Friesen was drowned in the Rhine River. 
And in that big tome of a book, we actually have one of the letters he wrote from prison. And I lifted a paragraph out of there. I'll read it to you. George Friesen wrote, Behold, I proclaim to you much joy for which I experience as Christ the Son of God promised, saying, I will not leave you comfortless. Those who trust in me, them I will help bear their sorrow and deliver them out of all distress. For he himself bound up our putrefying wounds and healed them, which none other could do. He healed us without merit on our part when we were yet enemies. He washed us with clean water and sent us the comforter, the Holy Spirit, as the faithful, gracious Savior Christ promised, who will bring to our remembrance all the things that we have heard. If we firmly abide abide in him, and bring forth good fruits, he will give us a mouth and wisdom that none of the wise of this world who are yet in sin and fain of the truth shall be able to contradict us. That's boldness. George Friesen was brought into the presence of counts. He witnessed for his faith and he trusted that Jesus would keep his promise and give him a mouth of wisdom and he could not be contradicted. God worked a particular miracle in George. His spirit filled, the Holy Spirit filled him with wisdom and boldness like that of Jesus. And so he was able to be faithful even to the point of death. Sometimes God provides a miracle of deliverance. And there are incredible stories of God providing miracles of deliverance, even in the Anabaptist stories as well. I always think about during the Russian Revolution, Makno and his anarchists, they were closing in in one of the Mennonite colonies, and the elders of the colonies gathered everybody in the village into the church. And they just thought they would pray because they thought they would all be killed that night. And as Makno and his forces approached, they could see, and this is by their own reports, an army of angels surrounding the church, and they immediately fled the village. Sometimes for the glory of the sake of Christ, for his name, God will work a miracle of deliverance. But I chose George's example because more importantly than deliverance, God provides the boldness to be faithful. God, grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The disciples, they could have prayed for judgment against their enemies. They could have prayed for the destruction of their enemies. They've done it before. Jesus turned them down. (laughs) They didn't do that. And George Friesen could have done the same, but in his letter, I didn't read the section, but he prays for the salvation of his jailers. The disciples could have prayed for deliverance. They could have prayed that the persecution would stop, that they would be free to preach and to teach Jesus without their families being put into danger, but they didn't do that. Mark Wirtz is of Hutterite descent, and you may not know this, but the Hutterites were so bold in their witness, every couple that got married would be sent out as missionaries. And they did this until they were reduced to a handful of families, and that's when they began to flee. They could have prayed for deliverance, but instead the Hutterites sought boldness. The disciples prayed that despite opposition, they would be bold. And they trusted that if God would help them to be bold, God would come through for them. 
And I don't want you to miss this. But in every step in this story, the community is entirely dependent on God. Their boldness does not come from themselves. They do not have the boldness. Peter did not have the words he said in front of the judges. Boldness always comes from God. And the kind of boldness that we see in George Friesen's life or in our passage today is as much as a miracle as any healing. And the disciples still rely on God to provide the signs to make their boldness and their preaching irrefutable. And we also see that the path of Jesus is marked by rejection. Rejection put Jesus on the cross. Rejection in his name is what scripture teaches us to expect. But this is not a license for us to be jerks. We don't need to pray for God to smite for people or to condemn people that we don't like. And we shouldn't even pray that we avoid that rejection. We should expect it. This is part of the design. And like the disciples and like George Friesen, our first prayer ought to be that no matter what comes, we are faithful because in the end, that is all that matters. United in praying in one voice, the church resolved to do the one thing which God called them to do, which was to preach Jesus' name. They will face their opposition boldly and they will all face it together. But I know, like I know what you're thinking or how you're feeling because speaking of the word of God looks hard. I think sometimes we overthink this part of our calling, the central part of our calling, until we come up with a really bad case of analysis paralysis. We make speaking the word seem so intimidating and complicated that sometimes we decide it's just for other people. But our calling in scripture is that if you are a Christian, if you follow Jesus, you are called to speak the word of God. My father-in-law, he makes some little notes in the Bible software that I use. So I'm gonna steal some of his notes right here. I think he's gonna forgive me. He wrote down that speaking the word does not mean that you need to preach expository sermons. I do that. That's what I do. And if we all decided to do this, we would not save the world. We would only bore the world to death. (laughs) You don't need to make sophisticated arguments or expository sermons in order to preach the name of Jesus. It's much simpler than that. And he also wrote, you don't need to be an in-your-face street evangelist either. That's the first thing we always think about, isn't it? Preachers and evangelists, they have their place. We've talked about that. But that's not everyone's calling. Simply be bold. And everyone knows what that means. Everyone knows that family member that they really want to witness to or that conversation that they wish had gone differently. And so pray for boldness. Because you see, we've seen over and over that Peter was bold with fundamentally a very simple message. Jesus was raised from the dead, and so Jesus is Lord. That's it. Jesus was raised from the dead, and so Jesus is Lord. And then Peter relied on God to prove it and convince people. That wasn't his job. The disciples lived in a total reliance on God. God gave them the words, gave them the boldness, and then God takes care of the proof. 
We overthink our witness until we scare ourselves to death and our boldness just kind of melts away. I've done it so many times. But how could it be more simple than this? Jesus is Lord, and it's not up to you to prove it. It's up to you to say it. We sang this this morning, sing with joy now our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice now, no love is greater. Who can stand against us if our God is for us? You can take the example of Paul and Philippi. God may prove all sorts of different ways the wisdom of the arguments. That's up to God. Sometimes Paul proved it through arguments itself and through discussing the Torah, sometimes through miracles, sometimes it was through personal example. But we leave that part to God and we trust it to him. God will do his part, just as when the disciples prayed, they trusted God to do his part. Simply give a reason for the hope that you have. Jesus is Lord, and you don't need to be afraid of the rest of it. And scripture teaches us that it is this simple message which will bring opposition. And you don't need to sweat that part either because that's part of God's plan. Just make sure that you're telling people. And if you're too afraid of rejection, we pray for boldness. Jesus is Lord, and then you trust God to prove it in a way that he sees fit. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are those who take refuge in him. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Hague Mennonite Church Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to our website haguemennonitechurch.ca. Until the next time.